Hello, everybody. Father Yuri here. I am including this message before the episode starts to apologize that our latest episode did not release yesterday, uh, but we are releasing it today. Further, uh, one of the reasons is because I actually lost the episode. I totally lost the episode. Don't know where it is. Don't know where the audio files were. So we had to actually re-record it today and then post it. And to add insult to injury, my mic wasn't working. So luckily, I had a backup mic that my computer has built in that picked up my voice, and I was able to salvage enough from it to publish the episode today. Luckily, Father Jeffrey, who does most of the talking and the teaching, his mic was working just fine, so you'll be able to hear him clearly. My questions, though, the the quality is a little lower, so forgive me for that. But here it is, the episode of O Gladsome Light about the historical development of this hymn, O Gladsome Light. Enjoy the episode, everyone. O gladsome light of the holy glory of the immortal Father, heavenly, holy, blessed Jesus Christ, now that we have come to the setting of the sun, And behold the light of evening, we praise God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For meet it is at all times to worship you, with voices of praise, O Son of God, and giver of life. Therefore all the world glorifies you. Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. Good morning, Father Jeffrey. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. So as some of our keen listeners may have observed, last week we aired an episode in our Gladsome Light series, Out of Order. Out of order. Oh dear. Uh, we released the episode on the narrative tra- trajectory of Gladsome Light, which is usually the middle, the third of our five in a series. And we skipped the historical development. So this past Monday, which would have been yesterday, for at least at the time of this recording and at the time of this release, uh, I uh, the the historical development episode released, but it ended up being the narrative trajectory episode audio, and uh, so I went digging, I went digging, trying to find where our episode was because we had recorded this months ago. Uh, it was a really great episode, the best one we've ever done has been <laughs> lost forever. So here we are on short notice, getting getting together recording an emergency episode that will be released the same day that we record it, which will be a lot of fun. Mm, very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, uh, in this episode, uh, this is the historical development of Gladsome Light. So Gladsome Light is the 
central hymn of Vespers happens right in the middle, you know, approximately right in the middle if you're serving uh, just Vespers. And uh, a lot of our listeners, if you're familiar with any part of Vespers, this is probably uh, one of the high points that you are familiar with. And we're going to talk about the historical development. So things like where does it come from? When, when, when are the earliest references? Uh, how ubiquitous is it in the Christian world? Things like that. So, Father Jeffrey, I mean, I think the first place to start is just, so glad some light, what is the earliest reference we have to this hymn? Because I think we mentioned in the biblical episode that it's not from the Bible, right? This is a composed hymn, so it must have been created by Christians after the Bible. Is that right? That's right. I mean, it makes use of some biblical imagery and phrases, um, you know, the references to things like in the epistle to the Hebrews and so forth. But it is clearly a, a Christian composition of a very early um, date. It's quite possibly the oldest uh thing that you could properly call a, a hymn uh, that is still in use uh, in Christian tradition. And it, of course, has continued to be sung and prayed through Christian history all the way down to the present day in both the Western church and the Eastern church. So it's a kind of unifying thing. One of the, you know, outside of the Bible itself, outside of the Old and New Testament, it is, you know, one of the few things that is used so ubiquitously in Christian history. Yeah, in popular Orthodox, I guess, apologetics, when, when you know, Orthodox people are maybe talking to more Protestant-style Christians, they might point to the antiquity of our church and point to the fact that we still pray these ancient prayers that the early church was praying. Is, is that a, is a, is, and they're referring to this hymn, Gladsome Light, right? We, we still pray Gladsome Light on a regular basis, which is an early church him and it's just part of the continuity of our church. Is that maybe is that an accurate way of describing our use of glass of light? Yeah, I mean it's slightly odd to say, you know, it um proves how ancient and venerable our church is because we use this when as I say, Western churches, Anglican, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, and others use it as well. Um, however, the actual argumentation is that's relatively interesting because one of the first references we have to it is by a chap doing exactly the same thing. Um, in his treatise on the Holy Spirit, St. Basil the Great, um, who lived from 329 to 379, so one of the Cappadocian fathers of the fourth century, he makes a similar kind of argument. He is actually writing about the divinity of the Holy Spirit, um, you know, against those who would kind of war against that or fight against uh, the, the Holy Spirit, maybe just saying the Spirit is a force or some kind of impersonal uh, attribute of God. Well, St. Basil says, no, that's not the case. And his argument, in part, hinges on this hymn, which is ancient even in his day, he says, we've been praying thus, you know, and there's reference to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it must be that the Holy Spirit is fully divine, one of the persons of the divine trinity. And uh, so the, the, the use of this hymn in kind of apologetic circumstances is ancient indeed as well, as well as actually just singing it. Yeah, that's interesting. So Basil the Great, Basil the Great pointed to the antiquity of this hymn, 
Mm -hmm. He didn't know where it had come from. Um, he also makes reference to another hymn in the same passage where he's talking um, about this. He refers uh, also to a hymn by a, a martyr, um, Athanogenes, whom we think is uh, an Armenian uh, saint who died in 305. It could be even an earlier Western saint who died in 190. It's, it's disputed. Uh, but he refers also to a hymn of Athanogenes that was his farewell gift. As he was going to be martyred, he gave a hymn to his disciples that also spoke about praising Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, some people have conflated those two things and said, well, St. Basil is attributing Fossilaron, or gladsome light, to Athanogenes. But it, I think if you read that carefully, you see that the, the, there is another hymn that he's referring to in, in that same kind of proof. But there are those who would attribute Fossilaron to this um, kind of late third century Armenian saint, possibly second century Western saint, Athanogenes. But in any case, it goes back before St. Basil's Day, because he knows of it, and he knows that they've always sung it. And therefore, it is proof, indeed, that the Holy Spirit has been prayed uh, within one divine Godhead, um, you know, from, for generations by that point. Yeah, this could po probably be a different topic for maybe a Patreon episode, but it's fascinating to see such a clear Trinitarian formula from the really early times of the Church. I think it's one of the things that makes this a compelling hymn. I mean, it, there's just there's the ritual surrounding it. There's its uh, early establishment as part of you know one of the main times of prayer during uh, the church day. So so during that same era of Saint Basil, uh, we know that it had been incorporated into the evening prayer and, and associated with the the lamp lighting ritual of you know uh, you know that thing which had come from uh, many cultures of antiquity, you know, before there was electric light, you, everybody gathered around the evening light that was being um, lit, and that was incorporated into the evening worship. So this hymn associated with that ritual is an established part of Vespers, you know, by the, the fourth century. And so, uh, you know, all of that makes it, you know, really compelling. But of course, it's early, full you know, full-on Cappadocian-style Trinitarian theology is obviously uh, compelling for one of the Cappadocians himself, you know, that, that he refers to it. Um, you know, St. Gregory of Nyssa writes about the death of, you know, his and St. Basil's sister Macrina. Uh, she died in the same year, actually, as St. Basil in 379. And uh, there's this beautiful passage in the death of St. Macrina that St. Gregory relates, where um, as she's dying, you know, on her deathbed, the evening light is brought into her room. Um, so I mean, this was still a hearth ritual as well as being a church one at this point. And he notices that she starts to kind of mumble or mouth the, 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 the words of this hymn. Uh, so, so associated, you know, was that light in the evening with this hymn, with Trinitarian theology. It's just a kind of beautiful package to kind of hold together. And uh, yeah, Already by the the mid to late fourth century, this was so common that Saint Basil says it's ancient. That Saint Macrina is instantly kind of responding to the light by by trying to mouth uh, the words of the prayer uh, and so forth. So we don't know where it first you know cropped up. It's referred to also in um, some of the recensions of uh, things like apostolic. Uh, 
constitutions, apostolic tradition. There's various documents that circulate in different languages from the late third and uh, early fourth century in different places. And there is actually a whole um, kind of version of that uh, that's told. Um, this is a, a kind of reconstruction of the uh, kind of Syriac version of apostolic uh, constitution. So this would be like third century if, if you know, we can uh, date it to, to a particular time. So I'll read it to you, um, you know, from as I say, this reconstruction of apostolic constitutions. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, this is talking about the evening ritual in church, the, the evening prayer. When the bishop is present and evening has come, a deacon brings in a lamp. And standing in the midst of all the faithful who are present, the bishop shall give thanks. First, he shall say this greeting, the Lord be with you. And the people shall say, with your spirit. And then the bishop says, let us give thanks to the Lord. And they all say, it is fitting and right. Greatness and exaltation and glory are his due. And then he shall pray thus, saying, we give you thanks, Lord, through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom you have shone upon us and revealed to us the inextinguishable light. So when we have completed the length of the day and come to the beginning of the night and have satisfied ourselves with the light of day which you created for our satisfying, and since now through your grace we do not lack the light of evening, we praise and glorify you through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom be glory and power and honor to you with the Holy Spirit, both now and always and to the ages of ages. And all shall say, Amen. So that was kind of an evening ritual in a Christian community, possibly a monastic context of, of some kind. And very clearly, the prayer of the bishop there, you know, is reflecting very much the same language and wording of the Fossilaron. So that possibly could be as, you know, established as late third century, so 280s, 290s, something like that. So mm-hmm. it's it's really quite incredible how much evidence there is. I mean, nothing definitive about the very first person who would have written it or anything. Um, in our Byzantine um, prayer books and so forth, it's often uh, ascribed to Patriarch Sophronius, who's, you know, much later indeed. So he may have kind of done a final recension version of the of the greek uh but 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 clearly you know centuries before sophronius you have um lots of textual evidence that this is precisely what people were thinking of and praying at the time of sunset and the lighting of the evening lamp in the midst of the christian community yeah so if i were to maybe repeat back some of what we've just learned just to make sure i'm on i'm on board with everything um you know the the when it comes to the antiquity or the ancientness of this hymn, you know, the first place that Orthodox people usually go is to uh, Basil the Great, who lived in the 300s, and looking at his book called On the Holy Spirit, where he's talking about the Holy Spirit and kind of the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And he, and he, in that book, does he actually quote the entirety of the Fossilor on the Gladsome Light hymn? Or is it just that he references that this hymn exists? No, he references that exists. So this is what he writes. Um, It seemed fitting to our fathers not to give the gift of the evening light in silence, but to give thanks immediately upon its appearance. And who was the father of the words of the lamplighting prayer of thanksgiving? We do not know. The people, however, utter the ancient form. And those who said, we praise Father, Son, and God's Holy Spirit were never considered impious by anyone. So that's what he says about it. So he quotes mm-hmm. only that part about we praise Father, Son, and God's Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. um, which is, 
you know one of the the the, the later phrases from from the hymn. But he so he refers to the a hymn with the evening light, the lamp lighting prayer of Thanksgiving, and he and he quotes that phrase. So yeah. um, say so we get a little bit uh, more from from Saint Gregory, um, but uh, the the actual words um, apart from what I read uh, reflected uh, in the Apostolic Constitutions and it's a reconstructed text of the third century, you know, really don't appear until a little bit later in the in the kind of full Greek that we have um, extant today. But they've been pretty settled from about the 600s, right? So we we don't have the whole thing before then. The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public half of the overall project of enacting the kingdom. Father Jeffrey and I actively post new episodes on our completely separate private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate and discuss open and sometimes controversial questions regarding the Orthodox faith amongst a smaller and more dedicated audience. If you become a patron now, you'll get immediate access to our growing backlog of private episodes, including a discussion on the ordination of women and the coronavirus multiple spoon controversy. To get access to this private podcast, go to pryingpriest.com. Looking forward to having you join our growing community on Patreon. Now back to the show. Right. So, yeah, what the, I guess that Basil the Great reference in On the Holy Spirit is one of the early pieces of evidence. And then you mentioned the other one was Gregory of Misa um, writing about the death of his sister, Macrina, and that, uh, you know, she she is actually saying that hymn. Right. So that's another early reference from the 300s. Um, and then can you actually give a quick rundown? I, I don't think that many people will know exactly what the apostolic constitutions, what, what that is. Right. So uh, there's a bunch of documents that circulate um, the earliest extant, you know, s- fragments or scraps of which are, you know, thir- late third, um, early fourth century, uh, but they continue to be revised and um, changed in different uh, manuscript traditions, whether it's Greek or Syriac or Ethiopian or uh, Coptic. And um, they are variously called things like apostolic constitutions, apostolic traditions. And obviously the whole point of calling them apostolic is to give them, you know, really ancient authority indeed. So they include things like canons and so forth. But we know, I mean, the, the context of these things wouldn't have been until sometime in the third century. I mean, they they refer to things that wouldn't have been the the case until the church had become much more established, you know, by that point than it had been at the time of the apostles. But things like the didahi, you know, the, the teaching of the 12 apostles that we do know goes back to kind of maybe as early as the middle of the first century and maybe later revisions, early second century. But those get included in some of these documents. So there's a whole, you know, collections of things called apostolic traditions, apostolic constitutions. They include early liturgies, canons, uh, references to prayers and practices and and, and that sort of thing. But there, there are as many of those as there are places that the manuscripts are found and languages that they that they're found in. So it's really hard for scholars to kind of work out what was original and what original even meant in terms of, you know, place or time and that sort of thing. So often when you're looking at the liturgical history here, they try to 
construct what are called ur text ur right um, and an ur text is, it refers to a kind of it's it's an imagined text actually we don't actually have a manuscript that looks like this but based on the way things evolve it's kind of saying well there must have been an original document that that looked like this or we you know we're getting back to something like a, an original now interestingly they do the same thing in biblical studies right with new testament manuscripts and, and so forth so the latest um you know, English translations of the New Testament uh, are based on something like a reconstructed scholarly text. There is no one manuscript that is translated to give us something like the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. It's a scholarly reconstruction based on hypotheses and, and so forth. So we, we don't actually have a text that is complete, that, that looks like, you know, um, the one that, that, that is an urtext. But in, in, a, in any case, it is fairly strong scholarly weight behind something like by the middle or end of the third century, there were these documents circulating that gives, give us a lot of information about what the church was like at the time. And so uh, to to say that a, you know, a hymn like Fossilaron shows up, it's referred to, or there's prayers that, that look a lot like that at that time is not absolute evidence. You can't say, well, there's a manuscript we pulled out of the ground from 280 that reads like this. But Nevertheless, scholars have a lot of confidence. And it makes sense. If St. Basil, by the middle of the fourth century, is talking about our fathers prayed this way, it's so ancient that I don't know where it came from. It's always been this way in my lifetime. Then you can you know, kind of backtrack that into the third century with a fair amount of confidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that can be relatively annoying for us today is to look back at certain historical things and not actually see exactly the evidence that we want. Like, for example, um, and this is this happens very often when we actually do historical study, is that, you know, Basil the Great is, say, our interest in this podcast, in this episode right now, is this hymn, Gladsome Light, right? But Basil the Great is only referencing it because he's actually talking about a different subject, right? Or he's focusing on a different aspect, which is who is the Holy Spirit? And and he brings in Fossilaron, Gladsome Light, as you know, a piece of supporting evidence, but he doesn't he's not delving into that hymn. So it's it's uh, a lot of these pieces of evidence, they become tantalizing, right? Yeah. But you know, one of the interesting thing is, and you know, historians of all kinds, uh, including historians of liturgy, will tell you this: one of the times you have the most confidence in something in a historical record is when it is brought in, kind of accidentally, um, and I mean that not just in the you know, kind of colloquial sense. I mean, in the kind of full-on Aristotelian philosophical sense, when you know this is not the essential thing that's being discussed. It's it's just part of the picture that's being filled out. So, um, you know, if if there's a reference, if someone's talking about something very specifically, you always have to wonder. Well, what's their motivation for describing it in that way? If that's the subject of their conversation, it could be polemical. It could be, you know, that they're you know rhetorically trying to persuade you of something, and so you have to then hold up, you know, their motivation to some kind of scrutiny, right? Well, Saint Basil's not actually trying to prove the antiquity of Fossilaron. He's not writing about that, as you say. So the fact that he brings it in as just this kind of, you know, 
accidental part of his full-on argument about the divinity of the Holy Spirit uh, means that we can trust that evidence even more than we would if he were actually trying to say, well, now I'm going to write a, a treatise on how ancient Fossilaron is, right? So um, the, the, there's greater scholarly weight and historical weight given to things that are only mentioned as it were, haphazardly or, you know, accidentally, uh, because it wasn't the intention of that author to to try to prove something about that. They're, they've only brought it in as they were talking about something else. So we get that a lot in liturgical history where, you know, curious little things get mentioned, um, you know, and it wasn't, you know, it's only brought in, you know, as I say, alongside other things, but we can put a lot of weight on those things because the author has kind of just, you know, opened up a kind of little window on, on history in a way that they didn't intend. We talked back in our series on Thisma, we talked a bit about the monastic attitude in the, you know, 300s, 400s of not wanting to add in hymns, right? Not wanting to add in the Traparia, the Quintakia, because, you know, let's focus on the Psalms, let's focus on the scriptures. We don't need all this fancy modern worship music, as the, the monks might say. But do we have any reference to how these monks felt about Fossilaron, like Gladsome Light? Because Gladsome Light itself is an extra-biblical Christian worship hymn. I'm not sure if there exists any reference. Maybe it was just fully accepted by the uh, monastic community as part of the life of the church by that point. Well, it- Possibly. I mean, we don't have evidence of, you know, what necessarily was being done, say, in the fourth century out in the the wilds of the Egyptian or Syrian desert in terms of worship. We know that in Cappadocia in the fourth century, uh, this became a kind of key part of the evening worship service and has been you know, ensconced in that spot ever since in Byzantine Vespers worship uh, and so forth. But it is telling, isn't it, that precisely at the time when there was a real reluctance to go out and compose uh, a bunch of new hymnography. So you have all this wonderful theology being defended in the fourth century at at Nicaea in 325, at Constantinople in 381. And so Basil lives his entire life between those two councils and doesn't attend either. Um, But, uh, you know, we, the, the 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 creed is composed, the symbol of faith, and that will eventually, by the early 500s, get incorporated into the liturgy. But what you don't find is a lot of Orthodox Christians composing hymns to defend the theology of the Trinity or the Christology around Christ's full humanity and full divinity in, in the fourth century. Scripture is being used for that. And uh, you know, the liturgical tradition you know, is to give strength to you know all the things that that were brought in from the psalms or from other parts of the scriptures as part of of worship it's the arians who are known to be out composing hymns during the 4th century right little compelling choruses and things like that 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 were bringing people over to their side of that debate and so what i say is telling that at a time when there's a real reluctance to use something from outside of the scripture within the liturgy of the church, that the Fossilaron gets its key part, you know, given to it within the Orthodox Vesp- evening Vesper service. So it may 
very well be simply because of its antiquity, right? It, it is known to be as ancient and venerable as the very, you know, works of scripture, you know, themselves, which is, um, which is fascinating because it means, you know, exactly as St. Basil says, we don't know where this came from, but we've always prayed this way and therefore we're going to keep doing that. So he may not have been out writing you know, new things. Um, you know, the, there are eventually things from fathers of that era that get turned into him. So think of St. Gregory the Theologian and his great you know, homily uh, on the nativity of Christ, on the incarnation that becomes the Christmas canon in part uh, within our, the Byzantine rite. But you know, nobody's really properly trying to write hymns to defend Orthodox theology in the fourth century. But this one is there, and but, but St. Basil says it's because it's always been there. You mentioned earlier this figure named Sophronius and his relationship with Obladsom Light. Would you be able to maybe speak a bit about Sophronius and expand on that reference you made earlier? Right. So the, the reference I made was the fact that in the Byzantine... Um, Right in the in the service books and so forth, most of which you know don't start to really appear until the eight hundreds, nine hundreds. In terms of you know full on prayer books, ephkologia um, as we call them, you know, uh, good word books is is the is the Greek term for a, a prayer book. And uh, so Sophronius um, was a patriarch of Jerusalem uh, in the six thirties. Uh, he was born sometime in the second half of the sixth century, probably around five sixty. died around 638, 640, and was patriarch of Jerusalem from the mid six thirties until his death. And he is, uh, you know, known, uh, for, um, you know, composing uh, various uh, hymns that we have, you know, within the Orthodox uh, Byzantine rite. And so you'll often find, you know, ascribed to Sophronius throughout the, the Byzantine hymnography, you know, various uh, bits of, um, you know, hymns and prayers and, and that sort of thing. So one of the things that is ascribed to him, although it makes no sense historically that he would have been the first to write it. If St. Basil is writing about it in the 300s, why would a patriarch from the 630s be the one who, who had written it? So quite likely is the situation that you know, Sophronius kind of had a last stab at, you know, revising the the words of this pre-existing hymn. So the words that we have today, we don't really have much textual evidence for that full, you know, exact rendering of the of that in greek until you know seventh century eighth century so and at the fact by that point it's ascribed to sophronius would say that he maybe had that last editing hand um in the hymn well we've got a couple of minutes left father jeffrey was there any uh bit that you would want to bring in about the historical development of gods and light before we say goodbye for today well, I think um, in the first <laughs> version of this uh, recording that we had done before, and I hope we haven't completely changed the history of the hymn by redoing it here, um, we did uh, there were a couple other things, and it, and they come from the very beginning of the dawn of time of this hymn, and they maybe come from something you know quite later, but we'd included both of these, and the first is there's a reference in uh, a Roman scholar um, uh, Varro who was. In the, in the century before Christ. And he refers to a practice amongst the Greeks, right? That when the evening came, uh, this is amongst the pagan Greeks, right? The, the, the light was brought in in the evening and it was greeted with an exclamation. Um, 
and it was here, hail, rejoice, um, fos agathon or fos ilaron. So that would either be good light, so hail, good light, or hail, uh, glad, gladsome light or joyous light, uh, depending on how you translate that. So this is probably the earliest reference to the title, you know, and, and the first kind of line of this hymn, and it's in pagan, you know, Greek culture. There's not really an evidence that the Jews had an evening ritual around uh, lamp lighting. We know, obviously, there's the Sabbath lighting uh, practice, and we know about Hanukkah with its lamp lighting and so forth in, in commemoration of the, the purification of the temple in the second century BC. But uh, in terms of a daily ritual, this is the first reference that we have, and it's from pagan Greek culture. And so, you know, a scholar like Father Robert Taft will conclude that, you know, this is a baptized pagan ritual that was, you know, probably common in the culture anyway, and then it was brought into the, the, the Christian assembly as this kind of evening ritual and moment and everything. But we do have a reference from the first century BC to an actual fossilaron or fos agathon, and it's from this Roman poet commenting, you know, on Greek culture. And the other thing that we had done last time, I remember, was um, just to kind of represent the fact that this has been translated and, and composed in so many different contexts um, through the uh, in, through Christian history, right? So we're very familiar with you know probably the Greek text in the Orthodox Church and the various English renditions of that and the way that we sing that. But it's it's been composed as a metrical hymn. You know, John Keeble uh, famously in the 19th century set that out, and a lot of Anglicans would use that in evening worship. But the American poet um, Samuel Wadsworth uh, Longfellow also made a nice translation of it, and I thought we might close by by um, by by uh, reciting uh, Samuel Longfellow's uh, version of this that is often included in, in Lutheran books of worship. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So this is his, uh, you know, metrical poetry version of Gladsome Light. O gladsome light, O grace of God the Father's face, eternal splendor wearing, celestial, holy, blessed, our Savior and our guest, joyful in your appearing. Day has not faded quite, we see the sunset light, our evening hymn outpouring, Father, incarnate Son, who our redemption won, Spirit of both adoring. Glory to you belongs, and praise of holy songs, O three-in-one life-giver, therefore our God most high, we worship, glorify, and praise your name forever. So it's glorious really and i to me you know rather than using this in a polemical sense to bash people over the head and say look how old our orthodox church is and how continuous our tradition is why not use this actually as uh, a source of christian unity right and uh you know one of the interesting things uh about uh longfellow is that he actually was unitarian <laughs> so <laughs> it kind of <laughs> Ironic. Why are we using a Trinitarian hymn? <laughs> Ironic that this fourth, this, this thing that St. Basil in the fourth century is using precisely to argue for the Trinity, you know, is taken up and given this beautiful rendition by somebody in a Unitarian context. But uh, but the more this this hymn is sung and prayed, Father Yuri, the happier I am. You know, no matter where it goes, surely it can only do good wherever it is go, wherever it goes, wherever it's sung. You've just finished listening to another public episode of Enacting the Kingdom. 
If you're getting value from this podcast and you'd like to support the show, you can head over to pryingpriest.com to become a patron. Also, five-star ratings with written reviews go a long way to getting the word out there about this show. Also, since enacting the kingdom is social media free, any word of mouth recommendations you can make to your friends and family would be greatly appreciated. We'll see you next time.